session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show for next Monday is How the Word is Past by Clint Smith. How the Word is Past, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And I saw lots of reviews about this book. It seems quite interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it this week and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. How the Word is Past, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America by Clint Smith. All right, the book of the week from... Last week that I'll talk about tonight is Probable Impossibilities by Alan Lightman. Probable Impossibilities, Musings on Beginnings and Endings. And so Alan Lightman is a, he's a scientist and a novelist. He's written uh, several novels, but also, I believe, a physicist. And so you feel that in this book, there's this blend between art and science and talking about scientific things with some artistic flair. And as the title and subtitle suggest, it's about things like nothingness, infinity, what does that all mean? And in a way, everything in between, starting with the fact um, it's from Blaise Pascal, this uh, something he wrote where he was kind of looking at humans as in between nothingness and infinity, which I guess does make sense in a way where uh, if you break things down, Further and further, you get to something almost infinitely small. And if we expand uh, to the universe as a whole, it's something incredibly and infinitely large. And even what do those things mean? Uh, you know, infinity, it's not something we can really understand and comprehend. And I might share some thoughts on that later uh, in the show, if this finite time permits. Um, but if we're looking at also the smallest way in breaking things down, he talks about that. Now, I've, I've read many books over the course of these six years of doing the books of the week that talked about science and astrophysics and things of that nature. And it's always very interesting, but also feels like a lot and also quantum physics. And it's very hard to comprehend and really know what's going on. I also think partially we don't know exactly what's going on. Um, but we talk about going deeper and deeper, smaller and smaller, breaking things down. And so at a time, we thought, well, we couldn't even see atoms, but once atoms were discovered, for many people, they thought this was the basic building block and there could be nothing smaller or you can't split an atom. And of course, when we think of nuclear bombs, fission and fusion, we know that you can combine or split uh, an atom. Not only that, that there are things way, way smaller than an atom. And if you go even deeper into that, there are electrons, protons, neutrons, but then even those can be broken down into things called quarks. And then maybe there's even things that are one-dimensional called strings, but 
even that is confusing to me because it was one-dimensional but also multi-dimensional. Again, it gets very abstract, at least from my understanding. And then you might even be able to break those down into something called like a Planck. I forgot what it was called. Planck, like Max Planck. You might know about the Max Planck Institute. I know there's a place uh, in Germany, in Leipzig, in Berlin. Anyway, um, but we break these things out into infinitesimally small pieces or parts and we really don't know anything smaller than that. And at that level also, there's this unification of the traditional uh, and quantum ways of gravity. And then also there's some notion that time and space might combine there. Now, if that makes sense to you, um, good on you. I'm not sure exactly what that means. And that came up too during the book. What is time and space? Was Is there a time before space or before time, I should say? What does that even mean? And he does mention that it's hard for us to comprehend these things because when we start thinking of things, we almost only can think of them in the sense of time, of that happened before this or after this or at the same time as that thing. And so it's hard for us to even comprehend what that would mean. There's no time. Well, what does that mean? So it's an interesting, for me, it was interesting hearing about these things, some of it feeling abstract hard to understand. Also, you know, it's a reminder for me that people who value science, I definitely value science, but a lot of what we're also doing is we think it's a a good way of trying to understand the world, which I definitely think it is, but there's a lot of trust and faith in the scientific community, because when scientists say we have, for example, detected these uh, these waves that can tell us something about the origins of the universe, these radio waves that are throughout our, our universe, I definitely have to just take their word for it. There's no way for me to even begin, first of all, I mean, really understand it, but then understand the measuring of it and to measure it myself. So much of what we mean when we say we trust science or we distrust science is about the scientific community is a big part of that. And that's something we've seen also in debates about vaccines and public health, people say, well, do you trust science? And often what is happening is people are either trusting or not trusting the scientific community. That's one element of what's going on. But anyway, so, uh, you know, looking at the infinitesimally small, hard to say that word, um, I'll probably say it a few times if I can. Um, and then also the infinitely big, how big is the universe? What does that mean? And different theories about that. And the Big Bang. So a lot of people, again, if you think of yourself as pro-science, you go, oh, yeah, the Big Bang. It's like this thing for sure. But can you understand why it happened or how it happened? Obviously, we don't even have those answers at all. But uh, it seems like these things we've taken for granted just because we've heard them from scientists repeatedly. So we just assume that's what you should think. Um, it's not that I'm saying I have a theory other than the Big Bang, but it's Mostly that I can only just take the word of the scientists about things like that. Um, but then, you know, he shares about different theories that maybe there was the Big Bang. It's like the central time or this T equals zero time. And before that, things were expanding backwards and now they're expanding forwards. Again, fairly abstract, but interesting to hear these theories that great minds are coming up with. And it's not just theories in the sense of, oh, this is a cool idea, but they have equations and things and measurements and observations that can help verify or disprove. And at the end of the day, that's what science is all about. Can you find evidence that might support your theory or really more clearly um, looking for evidence that could disprove? It has to be falsifiable to say it's not true, 
more than you can say it's definitely true. Something that I talked about last week when people use phrases like scientifically proven, that's almost an oxymoron in the sense that science can't really definitively prove something as being an absolute truth that can be our understanding up until this time. And so the book also explores um, things like the brain and how it works. Something was interesting. He mentioned that uh, there's an interesting comparison. The number of stars in a typical galaxy is 100 billion, and there are also estimated 100 billion neurons in the human brain. An interesting parallel. He didn't say that means something specific, but just a cool type of observation um, that the, the, the stars in a galaxy are 100 billion as they are, and even those numbers, 100 billion, 100 billion neurons is the amount of the human head, which is also slightly an estimate. We can't count them as easily as you might think. Um, but anyway, so that's uh, that was quite fascinating for me. I didn't know that comparison or that number was there. And he talks about you know life and understanding how things work in the brain. And he had this interesting chapter. It was a story of very slowly outlining the perception of a man and a woman who see each other, uh, you know, by somewhere that has a nice view. I forgot where it was. And when they look at each other, what happens that the, you know, the light that gets projected onto the man's retina and how that gets processed and then like where it goes in the brain and where it gets processed there. And, you know, he walked that through. And then even when one of them says something, how that gets processed by the ear and then moves through the ear to the auditory cortex and all of that. Uh, but then he ends it by saying, you know, we can understand all of that, but we still don't know why, or we can't explain exactly why when the man sees the woman, he smiles, or when, you know, in that interaction. So it's interesting uh, that, that what he said there, I thought was quite fascinating. What was also interesting for me is this notion that, you know, being religious and, and scientific and how do you, you balance that? Of course, it depends on um, what you believe in your religion. Uh, but he did say it's rare, but there are some theists, or most scientists, uh, when they're understanding the cosmos, are atheists, but there are some that believe in God, and he talked about some of them who are still religious and how they reconcile that. Um, he talked about how he himself does not believe in miracles, and he there was a whole chapter on that. The chapters are relatively short. There are these shorter essays, um, and how he doesn't believe in miracles, um, which I believe now what that means, though, is doesn't mean everything we think can happen is all that can happen. Um, my understanding of it is also that when we don't understand something, we think it's a miracle, but it's just because we haven't understood it yet. It doesn't mean it's, uh, you know, supernatural, which, you know, assumes it's more than what's the natural world, that something else is happening that some being is intervening or something is going on, it might mean we just don't understand it. Just like uh, he talks about uh, experiencing an eclipse and a solar eclipse and what that's like. I'm sure many of our ancestors, when a solar eclipse happened, thought something was going on. How did it become nighttime during the day or dark when it's usually light? And maybe their theory, oh, you know, the god or gods are mad at us or upset or something is going on because they didn't understand you know, what was happening that the moon, these huge spheres out there, it was blocking the light from the sun, which is what was giving light in the first place. And so that's what's going on. So I think often we experience things and if we don't understand them, it can feel like something 
metaphysical, something supernatural is happening. Um, I've even had some experiences like that where for a moment you think something is happening and then you realize it's not. And for that moment, even you might feel like, oh, is this something, you know, extra happening from what I understood or what I knew of the world? And he talks a bit about quantum physics in the book. And I read a book, uh, Helgoland, last year that talked about Heisenberg's discovery, or it was a process, but of, of discovering quantum physics and quantum theory. And it is so abstract to me, the notion that a thing can be in virtually two places at the same time, or it can go through a mountain without really going over it or going really through it, just end up being on the other side, which to me does sound supernatural before we understand quantum theory and quantum physics. Uh, we would think that it's completely supernatural to think something like that, but then we find out that, well, it's actually being proven or shown, I should say not proven, that these things are happening, these things that seem to violate what we tend to think of as how the world works. And so I think the human mind, it's interesting. We have, we evolved in a way to understand the world enough to survive in it. That's all we need to do is to survive. We don't need to know, uh, you know, how a star 50 million billion light years away is going to act or why, what kind of gases are in it or something like that. That really is not going to affect our survival. But it does appear that we have evolved so much that our brain can try to measure or determine or look at things that maybe we were not meant to know. By meant to know, I mean our brains were not prepared to understand them. And so I think there's at times these conflicting issues that come up or understandings that where things don't quite make sense because we can't quite understand them. And actually, infinity, which he talks about in this book, it's something that we can't quite wrap our heads around. What does that mean for something to be infinite? Or that some infinities are bigger than other infinities? Um, you know, that with math, you can see that where it's like, okay, the number of integers is infinite, but then the number of all natural numbers is going to be way more because that includes all the decimals, let's say. Um, so how do we comprehend those things? A bigger infinity? What is infinity to begin with? So it's interesting to think of these things, but I think often we get lost in them because we can't fully understand them. It doesn't mean it's not worth pondering or having theories about, um, but it does, to me, point to how we are limited in understanding the world. And sometimes these contradictions come up. Newtonian physics, for example, was enough to do everything, almost everything we were doing at the time, and still does hold up most of the time, but then we found areas where it no longer holds up. And then there's a theory of relativity and general relativity, which I don't quite understand very well either. I can say them just knowing some of the history of how these things happen. And that seemed to explain almost everything. And then we, we came across with quantum physics, which seemed to violate some of those things, or at least be an area where sometimes those rules don't hold true. So uh, I think it's interesting to see us try to understand the world better, but I think sometimes we come across limits, or at least they're limits for a while, partially because it's impossible for us to understand some things that maybe our brains were not quite made to have to comprehend or understand. Anyway, this book is an interesting compilation of short essays on some of these issues related to nothingness, infinity, and everything in between, um, from a scientist who also has a, you know an ability to write in a way that I think captures some of the beauty of um, science and also art at the same time. So this uh, this book was probable impossibilities, musing on beginnings and endings by Alan Lightman. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to uh, talk about um, a topic. I, I saw something yesterday, and so in some ways it's near and dear to my heart or my hand. Um, this uh, idea of left-handed people and how they have been treated. So I am left-handed and uh, something I don't know if I'd say I'm proud of, but it just is uh, part of who I am. So this topic was, it was some of it was funny and, and it was talking about experiences of people who are left-handed, but also went through some of the history of individuals who are left-handed and the way it's been looked at throughout history. And so um, the word left, I, for, I think that the word, it came from some very negative words like sinister and evil, and it's associated, associated with a lot of negative things. And in many cultures and societies, it was viewed as being something evil or bad to be left-handed. It was looked at as very wrong. I also think it's interesting when you think about left and right-handed. Um, in English, left, and then we have right, like uh, also right means correct, along with like right-handed. In Farsi, actually, you have the same thing in the Persian language. So you have chap and rust, and rust also means right, or if something is true or correct, it's that's rust. So it's interesting that we see that, that it's like the right, it's like the right way, right? It's the right side, it's the right way, in a way it's like better or it's correct. Um, and the left was often seen as something negative. And because of that, often uh, children were highly, not just discouraged, but they would, you know, they would be even punished, or they, if they tried to write with their left hands, they would be hit or spanked, or that hand was hit, and they were forced to write with their right hand um, and learn how to do that. I, I think my aunt actually had experienced that in Iran, and I've heard of many other stories like that. So for not that long ago, up until not that long ago, this was done in a lot of places. That you, It was something bad because it was seen as such an, a wrong thing, a bad thing. Um, it also talked about some things. There might be some links. There's definitely genetic component to handedness seems to be pretty strong, but could it be linked to some other things, ways of thinking, even linked to some diseases? I forget which ones it was, like dementia. Uh, that's kind of funny if it was like a memory thing and I couldn't remember it. But anyway, um, there were some ways that you, it might be protective or more of a risk factor for certain things. So it's still being researched. And you maybe have heard, I remember always hearing something like left-handed people die nine years earlier, something like that was the number out here. Nine years earlier than right-handed people. And then people would say, oh, is it uh, because of accidents? Because lots of machinery or things are made for right-handed people. And so a left-handed person might have some kind of mistake or something like that. Now, um, I didn't look over this before tonight's show, but I did uh, see before that some of what likely was happening was... Uh, when they did that type of research. So because of this whole thing where people were forced to switch from being left-handed to right-handed, if you measured, let's say, at 1980, all the people that died in 1980, and you looked at the age of people that died and compared left-handed and right-handed people, because you would have a lot less old people who are left-handed because they weren't allowed to be old, uh, left-handed, they, of course, aged. They weren't allowed to be left-handed people you would end up with looking at a number that would be much higher. You'd have a lot higher left-handed people dying earlier or dying at a younger age. 
I didn't explain it quite well. It's kind of an artifact of the statistics. So there wouldn't be a lot of 90-year-old people who are left-handed who would die at 90. You would have a lot of people dying who are like 50 and 60 and not a lot of people who are dying older. So it would appear that they were dying at a younger age, but it was more because there was this selection against being um, right uh, left-handed that didn't allow for there to be older people dying at that age. Definitely didn't do a great job of explaining it. If you Google it, you'll find people that will give you a more detailed explanation. But bottom line, it doesn't seem like there is this nine-year discrepancy in life expectancy for left-handed and right-handed people. But anyway, coming back to really what my focus was, wanted to be about today was when I saw this and seeing they were showing some you know old videos of of children and 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 how that experience was like being left-handed. You know, it was like so sad and also seemed so arbitrary and really stupid. I mean, to punish and make a child feel bad about being left-handed and then to even like force them to do something so unnatural for themselves because of this kind of belief that it's evil or bad or it means they're a bad person or they're doing something wrong. But then I thought, well, what I try to do when I see something like this of, oh, look how stupid or silly people were being before is can we see that same principle in society today and then of course quickly i was aware of like well yeah absolutely we do and so the title i thought of um usually you shouldn't give a title for something halfway through it but the title i thought for this segment was something like who's left and so it's a play on who's left as in the left-handed people was what brought this up but also who's left that we judge and treat this way uh, for being born a certain way and then thinking they're bad because of it. Uh, of course, a group that can jump out when we talk about being born a certain way when debates on this topic come up are individuals from the LGBTQ community who often can be judged to be immoral or bad or uh, you know various other horrible terms used to describe them for being born a particular way that's different from what is considered right. Again, we see that play on the words right and left, but this is the right way to be, is to be straight and to be cisgendered, born, and identify with the gender of the, the sex that you were born and have all those things very clear. This is the way you're quote-unquote supposed to be. That's the right way. And so others are left out of society or treated negatively when they are not born that way. And so that's what I thought would be important for us to think about and for ourselves to all reflect on who are the groups or a group of people that you might view a certain way just because they were born how they were born. They didn't really choose to act that way. Race also comes up in this, um, even though being born a certain race, race itself is more socially, uh, it's more of a social construct than a real thing that we can say clearly biologically, but there are going to be some things that we might look at. For example, skin color that people use to judge people as good and bad or have prejudices in one way or the other. And so people are being born a certain way and then being treated poorly or treated with an advantage or privilege based on their skin color, which has nothing to do with who they are or their value, but it's how people are interacting with individuals. So as I said, when I watch this, it seems, I mean, I'm sure to most people it'll seem silly if I say uh, left-handed people are evil. And if you're listening to me, I guess I tricked you because I'm left-handed um, and I guess I'm evil. But you probably will be thinking that's a silly notion to have. 
But I really, really want you to think about where might you be silly yourself or where might society be silly when it comes to this type of a issue that we judge people for being a certain way or not being a certain way. We also see this with things like what's often referred to as neurodivergent individuals. So individuals who it could be anything from autism spectrum to ADHD, but people who are born a little bit different from what is considered the standard and even what's normal. You might remember the book, uh, Nobody's Normal by Roy Grinker that I read last year. I really enjoyed um, the way we define what normal is, is it definitely a subjective thing, not based on some pure natural thing that is uh, biologically a certain way that we all should be this one way. And actually, even in that book, it talked about how there really isn't a normal. And even if we were this kind of normal as an average on all qualities, um, you'd probably be quite boring and not that interesting or not that good of a person or a citizen, actually. Um, but ways that we say that people should be, for example, a child needs to be able to sit still or else they have ADHD. And we judge and punish and make them feel bad about that and might even medicate them. doesn't mean that there never needs to be treatment for different issues, but there's definitely a way that we stigmatize and judge people for being born a certain way that's different from some type of right that we have. This is the right way to be. So again, who's left? Who do we punish in this way? And when you read books looking at human development or human evolution and human society, you recognize more and more that the value of people not being all the same makes a lot of sense. So for example, when it comes to sleep, some people are morning larks. They like waking up earlier. Some people are night owls and they like to be up later. I'm definitely more in the night owl camp. Maybe that's why I do a show from 8 to 9 p.m., but I'm definitely more in the night owl camp. And so uh, oftentimes, actually, we see in society, it's everyone is encouraged that you have to wake up at 5 or if you don't wake up by 6, you're lazy or you're not productive, uh, but that's not true at all. There definitely does not have to be a set time that's the right time and the more moral time or makes you more right to wake up at that time. Um, and people have biological predispositions to be more like a lark or a owl where they will function better at certain times and sleep better at certain times. We're not all the same. And then when you think of a society, maybe, or a group that was living together, it might be good to have some people that would be up at different times to be on alert, to be able to do certain things. It could actually be beneficial. If everyone was the same, it probably would be a problem and it might be better to have that type of diversity or even in thinking different people for example with ADHD tend to be more creative their mind yes we say they're not focused long enough on one thing but because of that they can be more likely to come up with new things or see things in a different way or have a different perspective or combine things more quickly with the way that their brain might be slightly different from what we consider quote unquote normal or individuals with autism might be very good at picking up on patterns or noti noticing when a pattern is being uh, going, uh, is being disrupted or not being um, followed in some way better than most people would. And that could actually be a valuable skill. So it's not that they are uh, good at something despite their, what we call mental illness, they're good at it because of that neurodivergent way of thinking and being that they have. And so rather than recognizing them as being, uh, you know, not okay or not right, not normal, 
we can recognize the benefits that come from thinking slightly differently. And so, as I mentioned, this theme to me was quite interesting looking at how we can judge people in a certain way and how before being left-handed was seen as something so bad and evil. Um, And again, we might laugh at people from the past, but we have to look at what we're still doing today. People get mistreated every day in our present-day society for being born a particular way that in no way needs to be punished or treated. They don't need to be treated bad at all, just because we think there's something that is right about being another way. I'm fairly convinced that in the near future, looking at some things like sexual orientation and LGBTQ issues will not even be an issue. It won't even just be another aspect of human experience, just like when we talk about left-handedness, not having really any value as far as someone getting judged about it or by that factor. Those things are going to happen soon. And so I think it's good for us to think ahead, try to be forward-thinking, and recognize the fault in our ways and learn from history by looking at what were the things they were doing and what makes you kind of laugh at what they did and then look at what might be laughable about what we're doing now. And I think treating people bad for being born a certain way is definitely something laughable, laughable in what we're doing as far as the logic of it, but not laughable because it's very sad because people get hurt by it every day. So who's left? Who's left that we judge for being born a certain way and what can we do about that? All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, To conclude the show today, I wanted to talk about a theme that I've discussed many times, um, but wanted to talk about again, which is when we're looking at breaking out of our comfort zone, when we're looking at doing anything in general, um, noticing the pains that are good for us and the pains that are bad for us. Life is painful. Life involves challenges. Um, To put it optimistically, life just leads towards death. Uh, even in this book, it talked about entropy, where essentially this organized state and we get more and more disorganized. He even talked about it in this way of looking at your brain going through entropy that you just keep losing little bits of it um, piece by piece over time. Again, very, I'm sure, uplifting, positive words to hear on your Monday night. But it is the reality. So, um, but looking at that and recognizing that life will involve pain, will involve challenges, uh, something that the way I actually it came to me was more looking at parenting, but it also relates to the individuals looking at choosing the pains in our life or in another way, which pains do we avoid or try to avoid? Um, Because there is going to be challenges, as I mentioned, but we do get at times abilities to pick some pains, avoid some pains, and how we make that choice can be very, very important. So, Uh, The way I say it in a simplified form is we want to differentiate between pains that lead to damage and pain that leads to growth. And I've been doing these Twitter spaces more lately. You may have seen me post about them on social media. You can come join them. They're always open. Part of it has been uh, being involved with this project called Astromojis, which is an NFT project that uh, they asked me to join to help promote mental health in what they're doing. Um, but we did one of these today, and, and I mentioned that it came up in the course of the conversation of choosing the pains that are, and differentiating first the pains that are growth versus damage. 
And it actually reminds me a bit of the serenity prayer of knowing, um, you know, of, of recognizing that what's the difference between the things I can change and the things that I can't, which is very difficult to know. But the things you can change, you want to do something about it, do that hard work. The things you can't, you have to learn to accept it. And so the really key wisdom there is how do you differentiate them? And so the same thing goes in this pain that leads to damage, the pain that leads to growth. As a theory, it sounds really good. Um, and I don't just say that because I, I made it up, but it's really, and probably I didn't make it up. I'm sure others have said it too. Um, but I think it is a good theory, but practicing it, as is always the case, is harder because in the moment, things can just feel uncomfortable. And we don't know, is this a good kind of discomfort I should embrace or a bad kind of discomfort that I should avoid and actually get away from? Uh, an example of this is relationships. So sometimes people will be in a very toxic relationship where they're getting hurt, they're hurting their partner, it's ugly fights, and then they get together and it's, you know, very loving and passionate, and then again, a bad fight. And they can tell themselves, you know what, this is hurting but this is growth, right? Don't you have to work in a relationship? Aren't relationships hard? Everyone says that. I say that. So this is that hardworking part of the relationship. It should feel this way. Uh, but that clearly sounds like pain that is damaged. It's hurtful. It's toxic. It's not good. The hurt that is good in a relationship or the type of pain that's good in a relationship is having uncomfortable conversations that momentarily don't feel good but then lead to some kind of growth in the relationship, resolving conflicts that could lead to growth, um, creating more intimacy that could lead to growth, feeling like we're going through things together that can lead to growth in the relationship. And so if we look at what we're talking about, it might be hard to differentiate, but one of the things we can see is that the pains that lead to damage, there's pain in the moment, and then there's more pain down the line. But the pains that lead to growth there's pain in the moment, but the result is some kind of strength or something better afterwards. I think a great analogy for this is uh, exercise. So, uh, you know, if you work out, if you work out hard, it should hurt a bit. There should be some pain or some, you know, stress, strenuousness to that exercise. Uh, but you could do something that hurts and then you're damaging your knees and ligaments and things while you're doing it. So it'll hurt then. And it'll continue to hurt and actually make you weaker. So when we're talking about damaging, it generally actually makes you weaker. So it's not what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's in this case, what's not killing you is still making you weaker. Um, but the opposite is if you do a good workout where your muscles are, are getting these microscopic tears, which then get repaired and leads to growth. And afterwards, you're going to feel better. So here, as you're working out, sometimes you use or get the benefit of a trainer who can make sure you're doing it right. What's what you're doing? Okay, if you do your squats this way, uh, you're going to hurt your knees really bad, or you're going to hurt your back really bad. So that pain would lead to damage. But if you do it this way, you won't do those things, and you will strengthen your muscles over time. And so you do it that way. A therapist can help you differentiate an emotional way, um, the pain that's leading to damage and pain that's leading to growth. That can be another parallel. However, most of the time we're going to have to do it on our own. We have to look at our life and figure things out. And often in the moment we're probably have to accept we're going to get it wrong. It's not that clear. Sometimes we avoid the pains that lead to growth just because we want immediate gratification or we want to 
um, avoid the discomfort of the moment, and we think we're avoiding damage, but really we're just avoiding growth. And likewise, we might embrace something that's actually hurting us just because we want to feel that for some reason too. So we're going to get it wrong. That was something that also came up when people um, commented on this, that when I mentioned that, and I understand that it's easy, easier said than done, which I totally think is true. But it's something we want to constantly be thinking about. And I also think uh, as a parent, this can be even more important because from a young age or and from birth, you have a lot of control, almost complete control over your child's and your baby's pleasure and pain and what they experience. And when they're babies, we really want to essentially minimize all the pain. There could be some teaching them to self-soothe as they get a little bit older, but essentially we're going to meet all their needs as quickly as we can so they don't feel that pain. But as, as children get older, this becomes a challenge for many parents of when do I allow my child to face some discomfort and pain, and when do I intervene and interfere and make sure they don't feel that pain. And it's not that easy. And it can be even harder for parents because they love their kids so much. And to see them feel any kind of pain can be so hard for them to see, so painful for them to observe, that their quick instinct, the knee-jerk reaction is to avoid all pains, to take them all away. And so parents have to be very much in touch with what's going on and got in touch with themselves or what they're experiencing or else they're likely going to do that. And taking a step further back, they have to look at themselves. How am I with tolerating discomfort and pain? Because that's obviously going to have a huge impact on how much you'll allow yourself and then your child to tolerate it as well. So if you're, for example, someone who has no space for negative feelings, and if you think if you're sad, it's really, no, this is really bad. I have to do something about it, or I should never be sad, or I should take something or do something to make my sadness disappear. If sadness feels like this big boogeyman that you really don't like, well, then as soon as you see your child crying, you're going to panic and, okay, well, what do I do to take away the crying? How do I make them stop? Do I give them something? Do I distract them? Whatever I can do to make them stop crying. And of course, if your child is crying, you should definitely care, but you don't want to approach with the panic that we have to get rid of this really bad thing because sad feelings, they don't feel good, but it's not a emergency. Or the way I like to think of it, if we think of a crisis with that I change to a Y, um, it's not a crisis when someone cries. It's just crying and that's okay. So you have to be able to tolerate negative feelings to allow the space to tolerate your child's negative feelings. doesn't mean you want them, but that you can allow for them and still validate them and not rush to make them disappear. And so related to that, when your child is going to face a hardship, how do you respond? Or even basic things like, you know, homework. Your child has homework to do. So we can think of just the what I call the pain prevention philosophy of parenting. He says, oh, I should do my child's homework. I don't want my child to be sad or not make a mistake, and maybe they don't feel good. So if we're just feeling that in-the-moment pain prevention philosophy of parenting would tell us, do the homework for your child, not just in those extreme moments when your child is coming to you and says, I had this project for a month and I didn't start it till tonight and it's due tomorrow, where a lot of parents will step in and feel like they're being heroic, but maybe they're actually hurting their child in the long run. But even in the short run, if you think of just preventing pain, you will quickly step in and say, I should do it for them. The kind of silly analogy I use is of a mother or father who says, I don't want my child to have to do anything that's strenuous, so I won't even let them walk. I'm going to carry my child everywhere. Um, some 
Persian moms and dads might actually think this is a good idea, but I'm just going to carry them everywhere. Why should they ever have to even take a step? I can do it. I want to sacrifice for them. So they, you know, you carry your kid around when they're zero. Okay. That's not bad. Now they're one, they're two. You don't even let, put them down. Why should I ever let them have to experience that? And they could even fall if I you know, let them walk, they can fall. I'm going to carry them everywhere, make sure they're okay. And maybe, it, you know, they start to get hurt a little bit. You feel some pains, but I can handle this. But let's look at what you're doing to your child. You're giving them no opportunity to grow. And actually, if you did something like that, their muscles will probably atrophy and they'd become incredibly weak to the point where they can't take their care of themselves and they'd be very unhealthy. So we can see that by trying to prevent pain only or prevent discomfort only, you're interfering with your child's growth, your child's ability to be healthy, and your child's ability to take care of themselves over time. Now we can get into the whole emotional dynamic of possibly wanting your child to be dependent on you because you are so afraid of the, the distance that can happen and tolerating that distance if they are independent from you. But even if it's just from preventing pain, we can see how, how harmful that is and how that would play out. So as a parent, you have to make these very hard decisions of allowing your child to face the healthy, helpful, and the pains that lead to growth. And this is, again, where it can be tough because it's not always so clear. Sometimes it's clear. Someone is hitting your child and you just take your child away. But what if your child has a disagreement with another child? A lot of parents do the same thing. They intervene. They just stop it. They say, oh, let's not talk anymore. Or something I see often is the parents talk to each other. So you know, two young kids get into a fight and the mom's talking. They say, oh yeah, we, we made up. So you, you're friends again, which doesn't really make sense because the kids don't understand what happened. It was between them, but the parents don't want the kids to have to, to go through the pains and get uncomfortable. So we'll just fix the problem for you, but you're preventing growth. You're not protecting your child. You're actually preventing your child from growing. So we have to differentiate between that pain that leads to growth, which means, and and don't get me wrong, this is what makes it hard is that it feels the same often. It, they both don't feel good. So I know when I say pain that leads to growth, it makes it sound so beautiful and pretty, but while it's happening, it can feel really, really bad. It doesn't feel good. And so because of that, we have to tolerate that even feeling bad when we know it's good for us, but especially with our children, we have to be so careful not to get in their way of growing. We have to promote their growth. So your child didn't do their homework and it's due tomorrow, what do you do? I don't think it's black and white, but I think often it would be better for them to go in and face the consequences of not finishing their work and seeing how that feels and talking about it. You don't need to shame them at all. That actually is going to lead to pain that's damaged, but you can support them as they think about what happened, what happened of them not doing the work. Why did that happen? What can they learn from it? how you can support them. So it doesn't mean they're completely on their own. So you might say, okay, next time you have a project, you can come to me and I can help you get it done in the sense of scheduling things, for example, together. So again, it's not saying we don't support our children and depending on their age, that level of support is going to change. But we make sure that they're taking responsibility for their actions so they can learn and grow from them. Even if they feel bad in the moment, that can be more than okay. And so we want to give them that space. Now, let's say they didn't do their homework. They go in and you find out their teacher yelled at them and called them stupid and said these names. That to me would be pain that's damaged. So yes, they can experience the consequence of not getting their work done, but they don't need to be emotionally abused or berated for, for not doing that. That would not be healthy. So that's in parenting, but then also for ourselves, we constantly are 
in these situations where we choose pains that are for growth and pains that are for damage, or we just choose comfort over any kind of pain or discomfort and let that be our guide. But it's important to be mindful of what we are doing. And to me, this is a huge distinction in how we run our lives and experience our lives. Are we going to focus on doing the things that hurt but help us grow and making sure we don't actually avoid those things and avoid the things that hurt us and damage us over time? It's not always going to be so clear on what we're going to do. And again, as a parent, think about that. How am I interfering with my child's growth? It's not loving to prevent growth. It might feel that way. And often parents will think, oh, it hurt me. So that analogy of carrying your child, you might think, oh, my back is even hurting that now my child is eight, but I'll never let him or her take a step on their own because I love them that much. That's not love. You're hurting your child by not letting them grow. Sometimes allowing your child to feel some pain, if it's in the discomfort towards growth, is actually the most loving thing you can do. It might feel very paradoxical, but actually could be the most loving thing to do, allow someone to feel some pain. And the same thing goes for us. Sometimes allowing ourselves to feel discomfort that's leading to growth is the most loving thing that we could do. Just like if you wake yourself up and go for a run, it doesn't feel very good, but it's good for your physical and mental health in the long run. And so letting yourself experience that pain is actually good for you, not bad for you. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night.